we're going to pick up where we left off in the book of Revelation. And so if you'll find Revelation chapter 14, we're going to look at the first five verses as we stand together to read Revelation 14, 1 through 5. Let me remind you, our annual church uh, conference is tonight, so uh, we want that to be a time of celebration and preparation as we affirm new ministry teams and new budget. It's an exciting time of year. Uh, to be a part of, and so Trinity family, uh, if you're members here at Trinity, we want you to be a part of this tonight, as uh, I know you're like, well, it's a business meeting, but really it's more than that, it's a celebration of what God's doing, so I want you to come be a part of that tonight at 6 o'clock, hope to see you here. Now that you found your place in Revelation, I'm going to uh, get you thinking about this question first, how will you be remembered? How will you be remembered? Well, we read about a special group of people here uh, and what they're remembered for in Revelation 14. Then I looked, and there on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written in their foreheads, or some translations say on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like a sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was also like harpists playing their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones not defiled with women, for they have kept their virginity. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from the human race as the firstfruits for God in the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Father, we thank you for the example of this body of believers, prophetic evangelists who stand in the face of persecution and make you known and now have the awesome privilege of standing with you. And as we look forward to their coming on the scene, and as we think back on those who have stood with you and for you through the years, I pray that we would learn from their example how to best be remembered when the consummation of the ages has come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. Yesterday morning when we woke up and began to move around the house a little bit with the television on the Olympics as it usually is this time of year. Remember, we saw the um, young lady, in the, the, the triathlete, something uh, I admire but have no desire to be. Uh, but she was uh, finishing this triathlon, and we, we just couldn't help but try to wonder, is, is this young lady from the United States, Jorgensen, I believe is her last name, is she going to win this thing? Uh, there's some of you that are kind of into that. You, you might be runners and you might be swimmers and bike. Some of you could actually uh, finish a triathlon perhaps today. But uh, to me, it just kind of blew me away, the, the endurance, the commitment, the training that would go into something like this. And then it wasn't, just, it wasn't like one of those sprinters who, you know, they go out there. I think that someone said that the fastest human on the face of the earth, Usain Bolt, um, Usain Bolt, did I say that right? Anyway, he... Um, uh, spends about seven minutes of the Olympics on the track, and that's about it. Uh, and, and yet, you know, he gets a lot of the, the medals and, and the praise for all of that because he's, after all, the fastest human. 
And, and so that's impressive to watch. But when you see someone who goes into the training and does something like a triathlon, and, and maybe this morning they were running a marathon, but just to, to see what goes into that, uh, to me it's just mesmerizing. And then to see when she pulled away at the end uh, from the young lady who was from Switzerland and, and won the gold, and, and then she's draped in her nation's colors like so many others. I think uh, the Americans have won over 100 medals, and, and maybe a good number of those were gold. It seemed to be proudly wearing those colors at that moment. And I thought, are we uh, as excited to endure and persevere and train to be all that we're to be for the kingdom of God? Do we wear our colors with the same pride? You know, at times those colors are, uh, for our nation are represented very well, and at other times those colors aren't represented so well, as we saw with a particular scandal in the news this past week. What about our rep- representation of the kingdom of God? Sometimes we wear his colors well, and sometimes we don't represent his colors so well in the face of opposition and fierce challenge. Given an unbelievable mission, these 144,000, and I am of the camp that believes that these 144,000 are literal Jewish converts to Christianity who become evangelists, who shake the world in the face of great opposition in the future, during the tribulation period that is to come, and others say, no, these 144,000 represent symbolically those who stood throughout church history or even those in the first century, regardless of the timing, they, they set for us an example that we can follow, lest we get our head down. When we read chapter 13, as we did last week, and we begin to study the the, uh, the false prophet, and we, we look at the Antichrist who comes on the scene, and we can say, oh, this is just bad news, this is sad news, and in the midst of all of this opposition, we see God's choices, the cream of the crop, emerge again and again, and we can live this life. Right now, we don't have to say, well, if I'm here during the tribulation period, or if I had been here during the first century when the early Christians were receiving this word to begin with. But today we can follow their example and we can learn from them. You say, well, how would I be remembered? Would I be remembered like this 144,000? Could these things be said about us? First of all, I want you to see something that was said about them and it was found in verse 1. And we can summarize it with this statement, the courage of their identification with Christ. Will you and I be remembered for the courage of our identification with Christ? Will we wear our colors with courage? In verse 1 it says, I I looked and there on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Jesus is now on the scene. We see this 144,000 standing with him, and not only are they proud to stand with him, their pride is not in anything that they are. It's not a selfish pride. It's that I want to be seen and identified with the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. I want to be standing with Jesus. When we see here at the end of the ages, at the consummation of the ages, as it would be, as, as the intensification of all the trials and tribulation of the great tribulation that we've read about, and we haven't gotten to the bowls yet, but we've seen the trumpet judgments, and we've seen it kind of intensifies. It comes to the end of those trumpet judgments. 
And now all of a sudden we have kind of the beginning of the end taking place and the Lamb of God is standing in Zion. That's Mount Zion. That's God's holy hill. That's the place where the temple was constructed. That's the place where many scholars believe going all the way back to Abraham where he would have taken Isaac to be sacrificed. But God provided a, what? A ram. That first sacrifice. Now here's the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus who would die on a cross there in Jerusalem. Now he's standing in Jerusalem again. And so this mountain, Mount Zion, always meant something to the Jewish people. It means something to the people of God. In Psalm 121, we we like to quote this and we like to sing this. There have been several songs written about it. But the psalmist writes, I will lift up my eyes into the hills or to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And what the psalmist was saying, that's one of the psalms of ascent that they would sing on their way to Zion. And he would say, I lift up my eyes to the hills because all of the mountains in Israel, all of the mountains in Palestine seem to be dedicated to gods, little g, various gods and and altars of worship were built on the tops of these mountains. And what the psalmist was saying as they would make their way to Zion, as they would uh, make their pilgrimage to a place of worship for one of the feasts of that day in the Old Testament, as he was saying, as I lift up my eyes to the hills and I ask, Where does my help come from? Eventually, as they made their way towards Zion, he was saying, my help doesn't come from any of those mountains. My help doesn't come from any of those gods. My help comes, and he would look towards Zion, and he would say, my help comes from Yahweh, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And that was the hill that he would look to. And so now, Jesus is appearing on Mount Zion. In Job 19, by the way, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. It doesn't record the oldest activities. Of course, that's Genesis. But the first book that was written, the oldest book in the Bible, is Job. And in Job chapter 19, verse 25, in the midst of all of his trials, and some of you that today are going through trials, going through difficult seasons of life, in, in, all, in the midst of all of Job's trials, he, he was able to say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I know that he will stand upon the earth in that last day. And here's Jesus, the Lamb of God, standing. And they have the courage, the the desire to want to be identified with Him. See, this was a picture of Jesus showing up on the scene saying, it's almost over. I believe personally that a rapture of the church has already taken place, that, that God has fulfilled now almost all of that 70th week of Jewish history by working through the 144,000 evangelists who would lead many others to faith in Christ. And if they were wondering, okay, is it going to be worth it all? I doubt that they doubted, but Jesus now shows up on the scene. C.S. Lewis writes about it in in the the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in his Chronicles of Narnia. And of course, uh, Hollywood, maybe it was Disney that tried to put it to film, gives us a little picture of what that was like by an analogy. If we've got that video ready, I'd like for you to watch it. Some of you might recall the movie, but this is sort of the feeling of what it's like to see Jesus in the middle of the fight, in the middle of the battle, on Mount Zion. Can you imagine? That's just a picture. That's Hollywood's portrayal. But one day, in the heat of the battle, in the last days, 
Jesus is going to set his feet on Mount Zion, and when we see him, when the 144,000 see him, when those who are on the earth see him, everything's going to be okay. Who do you want to have identified with on that day? Look back at verse 1. How did they identify with him? It said his name and his father's name was written on their foreheads. They were not ashamed. Now that sounds a lot like another type of identification that took place in chapter 13. Those who would identify with the Antichrist, and we saw the mark and, and the mark of the beast and the 666, and those uh, who had kind of a, a familiar passivity with identifying with Antichrist. They were kind of going along to get along. If I want to buy and sell, if I want to survive, if I'm going to be okay in this life, then I've just got to go with what the rest of the world is doing. And, and those of us who walk with Christ will feel like we're in kind of a spiritual battle against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, even in this life. Romans 12, 2 tells us, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Identify with Christ. Be different. What are the consequences of not identifying with Christ? What are the consequences of, of passively just kind of go along and say, well, you know, that's why, what the rest of the world is involved in. That's what they're up to. And, and if I'm going to survive in this life, if I don't want to be made fun of in this life, if I don't want to be put down, if I don't want to be persecuted for my faith, I've just got to kind of go along to get along. You see... The result of that, when the third angel speaks in, in the, the uh, following passage in Romans, I mean, sorry, in Revelation 14, he says, the third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Now, this is not the same mark that identified the 144,000 with the lamb. This is the mark of the beast that identified one with Antichrist. It says, he will also drink of the wine of God's wrath, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. Remember, Jesus said before he went to a cross, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was going to drink of the cup of God's wrath for you and for me. And when we identify with Christ, we don't have to drink of the cup of God's wrath because Jesus drank of that cup for us. He will be tormented, it says, with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of, this is one of the most mind-boggling things to me, in the sight of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. And there is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or anyone who receives the mark of his name. It says that they're suffering forever and ever in the presence of the Lamb. Now, I had always heard growing up that one of the worst things about hell would be separation from God. And here we're told that all of the wrath of God that's being poured out is in the presence of the Lamb. And you say, wait a minute, how can it be separation from the presence of God if the Lamb is overseeing it? By the way, you realize that the devil's not ruling hell with a pitchfork. Like, you know, he's, he's suffering as well. We're going to see him get his. We're going to see his demise when we close out this study. But here we see that Jesus is the one executing the wrath that he drank himself for those who would identify with him. So we speak of the presence of God in a couple of different ways. There's what we would call the spatial, not special, but space spatial presence of God and God is omnipresent there's nowhere that God's not and he even oversees 
the wrath that's being poured out in eternity. But there's also the relational presence of God. And that's not in all places at all times. The relational presence of God. Only those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who receive Him as Savior and Lord, have a relationship and know His presence in that way, the fullness of God's presence. And so we're going to be in the presence of God for eternity, either enjoying His blessings because of a relationship with Him or or not enjoying His wrath because we would not identify with Him. Are you going to let your colors be clear in this life? Are you going to lift high the banner of Christ? Are you going to wear those colors well or go along with the world? We can learn from these 144,000 that they had the courage to identify with Christ. Secondly, I want you to see this morning that the courage led to a celebration, not only the courage of identifying with him, but I want us to be remembered for the celebration of our redemption in Christ. Believers should be known for their celebration. Too many times we're known for our bitterness or our frustration or our not identifying with Christ, but we should be known as a people who love to celebrate our living Lord. And so in verse 2, he hears this loud sound from the heavens like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder. This happened every time yesterday, and, and because of the busyness of life, my, my grass was getting taller and taller the past couple of weeks, and I said, well, Saturday, Saturday's my day. I'm going to cut grass, and every time it would be time to go out, the thunder would get closer, and it would begin to rain. Thunder and cascading waters, right? With, with a storm that sometimes we hear approaching, he says, that's kind of what it sounded like, although it wasn't really a storm. He said, the sound I heard was also like harpists playing on their harps. Oh, wait a minute, now it's getting musical, the harp with the most melodious music that he could imagine. And they sang a new song. God was doing something new and something fresh, something exciting. I think as a church, that's why we love new music. We should love a new song. Then we should also enjoy singing those great songs of, of redemption like when we all get to heaven. They begin to sing a new song before, before the throne, before the four living creatures that we read about that pictured so many of the things that Daniel and Ezekiel had pictured. But no one could learn, no one could understand the song except for the 144,000. So this, the celebration begins to swell. And then the music is heard. And after the music begins to be heard, it's like, hey, they're singing down there. Let's get a little bit closer. Actually, it comes a little bit closer to John, and, and he begins to hear the lyrics. The lyrics begin to be heard, but he couldn't understand that they sang a new song before the throne. And only 144,000, those that had been redeemed and, and preserved through the tribulation, they could understand the lyrics. They, they knew the meaning of the song. It was the song of their redemption. It meant something to them. That's why there are so many today that they can see churches having a, a time of worship. They can hear their praises, but for so many, they're like, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And it's because there, there are certain things that only those who are redeemed can truly understand. It only makes sense to us. And in Psalm chapter 32 and verse 7, the psalmist, after writing about his brokenness because of his sin with Bathsheba, David writes, 
about his restoration, his confession, and his repentance. And in verse 7 he says, as a result, you have surrounded me with songs of deliverance. He also writes about deliverance in Psalm chapter 40, uh, verses 1 through 3, where he says, I waited patiently on the Lord. Anybody there right now waiting patiently on God? God, I need you to, to deliver me out of this situation. He says, I waited patiently on the Lord, and he heard my cry, and he inclined unto me. He came to where I am. That's the gospel. God meeting us where we are when we can't get to where he is. And he says, you inclined unto me and you lifted me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and you set my feet upon a rock. And you put a song in my mouth, a new song. And many will see it and they will hear it and they will put their trust in you. God is a God who gives us new songs of redemption. I love the way Phillips, Craig, and Dean write a song of redemption. They titled this the, uh, the favorite song of all, and this is one of the verses in the chorus. He said, it's not just melodies and harmonies that catches his attention. It's not just clever lines and phrases that causes him to stop and listen. But when anyone set free, washed and bought by Calvary, begins to sing. That's his favorite song of all. It's the song of the redeemed, when lost sinners now made clean, lift their voices loud and strong. When those purchased by his blood lift to him a song of love, there's nothing more he'd rather hear, nor so pleasing to his ear as his favorite song of all. It's the song of the redeemed. Remember the angels longed to look into this thing called redemption. They longed to understand it. So here the angels don't quite get this song. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is there still a song in your heart? Like the psalmist, David, who wrote Psalm 32, that he was surrounded by songs of deliverance. In Psalm 51, he begins to write about that same story again. About how he had to experience a season of refreshing and renewal because he had gotten far from God because of his sin. But about how he began to confess his sin. And he prayed in Psalm 51, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. I wonder if this morning there are many of you sitting here that would say, you know, I've kind of drifted from God. I can remember a time that there was a song in my heart, a song of praise unto God, but I'm not as close to Him as I used to be. And so you would cry out, Restore the joy of my salvation. Give me new songs of deliverance. That's the celebration of redemption in Christ. And finally, if there's a third thing we can be remembered for this morning, it's the, the consecration of our lifestyle into Christ. The consecration of our lifestyle into Christ. It's not just enough to say, I, I speak out, I stand with Christ. That's our confession, being identified with Him. It's not enough just to say, not only am I identified with Him, I'm going to celebrate, I'm going to worship, I'm going to praise His name. But will people see a difference in our life? Will people see a, a lifestyle? In verse 4, these are the ones not defiled with women. And we're speaking of 144,000 male evangelists here, but I believe this would apply to all Christians today in principle. They have kept their virginity. And by the way, it wasn't saying that all uh, sexual activity was a sin. Of course, the Bible speaks of that in the context of marriage. Uh, the Bible says that the marriage bed is undefiled, but these were unmarried evangelists that were set aside, that were set apart, much like Paul said, in 1 Corinthians 7, if you have this calling on your life, then it's a sweet and a beautiful thing. And as a result, 
they abstain from all forms of sexual immorality. I believe that probably in the last days, as we have seen growing in the time in which we live, the greatest attack is not going to be the dragon, the devil himself. The greatest attack is not the Antichrist, though we may get consumed with who he is. The greatest attack is not going to be the false prophet, though we might have a, a lot of things to worry about, the spirit of Antichrist that's on the scene even today. The greatest attack on our lives is our own flesh. Our own fleshly desires. And, and not only have we read about in chapter 12 about the saints being victorious over the dragon, over the devil himself, but now we're seeing that these 144,000, they were victorious against the, even their own battles in the flesh. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3 says, This is God's will for you. I think every young man needs to memorize this verse. First Thessalonians 4, 3, This is God's will for your life, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I believe there's something about that, that if we can live morally pure lives, if we can get victory over the flesh, then the battles against the devil himself will seem like nothing. See, we're always in that battle. Galatians chapter 5 says it this way, the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit so that the two are contrary. But you have this promise following in Galatians 5, 17, if we walk according to the spirit, we will not ever fulfill the desires of the flesh. And so if we're going to be remembered for something, let it be that we're remembered not for saying, hey, they identified Antichrist. Boy, they could rebuke the devil. Remember Jesus said, don't rejoice <laughs> that the demons are subject to you, but that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let us be remembered for people who had love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, patience, self-control. We could get victory because we were yielded to the Holy Spirit of God, filled with His Spirit, walking in the Spirit and getting victory over the flesh. These were evangelists. They were proclaimers of good news that there was a Lamb who died for the sins of the world. And we know that they had great impact because of their witness in chapter 7 that people from every tribe and tongue and nation had come to faith in Christ because of their witness. I believe it had a lot to do with because of the purity of their witness. These men were pure in heart and pure in lifestyle. There was a farmer who would go to the farmer's market every Saturday. And when he would go to the farmer's market every Saturday, he would take one tub full of cottage cheese that he had made, and he would take another tub that was full of honey that he had made. And he would always have two ladles, so people would bring their own jars for cottage cheese or for honey. And, and so he had these two tubs, a tub of honey and a, or a barrel of honey and a tub of cottage cheese, and he had these two ladles, and, and one day he forgot one of the ladles. And he made the mistake of dipping the ladle that had cottage cheese all over it into the honey. Well, it may have looked just like a little bit of honeycomb in there at first. But after a while, after he kept making this mistake and putting the ladle in the honey that was in the cottage cheese, someone said, man, I can't even tell the difference. Which is which? Sometimes in this life, when we try to serve people the good news of the gospel, 
the sweet news of the gospel and we've dipped our lives into everything that this world has to offer. People say, I, I don't know the difference between what you're trying to tell me and what anybody else is trying to sell me. They can't tell the good from the bad anymore. Not so with this 144,000. They were known for their purity, their consecration and lifestyle unto Christ also speaks to their loyalty. These are the ones, verse 4, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Remember Peter, when, when everybody was kind of leaving Jesus, all these crowds had followed Him, and, and, and they're starting to fade away as the message of the cross became a little bit more a part of His preaching and teaching. And He looks at His disciples, He looks at the twelve and says, are you guys going to leave me too? Remember what Peter said, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We've got nowhere else to go. They were loyal to the point that they would see Christ standing on Zion and stand with him. They followed the Lamb, and then they were the first fruits, it says. They were redeemed from the human race as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. At the Feast of First Fruits, the Jews would come and they would bring their, their, their choicest and their best and God's first blessings, but they, it wasn't just, okay, the, the first of the crops were given as an offering, it was the best of the crops, it was the first fruits, the, that which stood out, that which was prominent. And because of their purity and their consecration of lifestyle into Christ, they have a place in Scripture, in a place in history as being God's very best. I pray that we will desire that for ourselves. That we'll say, God, I want to be your choices, servant. I want to be your very best. Do we seek to be our best for God? Do we seek to give God our best on a daily basis? Were they perfect? Of course not. Were they authentic? Absolutely. Look at verse 5. No lie was found in their mouths. They were blameless. They didn't pretend to be somebody they were not. They were the real deal. And I pray that we'll be remembered, listen, not as a perfect people. I pray that I won't be remembered as a perfect pastor, but people would say, you know, he's real. That my wife wouldn't be able to say, well, you know, he's one person on Sunday morning. But you should see him through the week but instead that my wife can say, you know, he is who he is by the grace of God, and he's a real deal. I pray that every one of us here would be able to say that, and, and that the people who know us best and love us most could say that about us, not that we are perfect, but that we're authentic, that we're blameless because we're real, and that our only argument for being part of God's choices is the grace of God that we yielded to as we learn to live a consecrated life unto Christ. As you get started in a new school year, students, whether you're middle school, high school, college, I want to challenge you big time. Don't be ashamed to identify with Christ. Have the courage to identify with Him. Sing those songs of redemption and deliverance of what He's done in your life. And ultimately, live a consecrated life 
God says, come out from among them and be separate. It doesn't mean that you isolate yourself. It means that you insulate yourself. It means that you're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're in the world making a difference, loving people for the glory of God and pointing people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that on that day, listen, whether you return with him or whether you stand with him, that you're not ashamed to identify with him. Would you bow your heads with me?